Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. The Israeli Defense Forces are deep in Gaza City in another military operation against Hamas terrorists. Now Israel says it's ready to pause the fighting, but it won't be a ceasefire. Do we have a possible third-party presidential candidate? Senator Joe Manchin just hours ago announcing he won't run for re-election. Find out what he plans to do instead. Interparty discord is causing trouble for Republican lawmakers on funding specific items in the federal budget. And now the House may be forced to vote on impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. In Michigan, activists want former President Trump blocked from the primary ballot. They argue the Secretary of State has the power to do it, but she won't. How the state responds and what Trump plans to do. President Biden reacting to polls showing him trailing Trump in multiple swing states. That's as the president visits Illinois, touting the UAW labor deal. And the Hollywood actor strike is coming to an end. After four months, the union and studios have finally reached an agreement. What's in the deal and how industry insiders are reacting? Israel's defense forces appear determined to defeat the Hamas terrorist group no matter their location. One of the IDF's latest military operations was near a hospital in Gaza City. The IDF says Hamas is losing control of the city as it announces a significant turn of events in the war. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. Gazan residents appeared unfazed by the sound of another explosion in the city. On Thursday, body bags laid on the ground and a cloud of smoke hung in the air behind Al-Shifa Hospital. Israel Defense Forces raided an area near the hospital where Hamas terrorists were reportedly operating. The IDF reported killing about 50 terrorists during the operation. A graphic released by the IDF shows how a Hamas tunnel shaft was located inside a mosque next to a medical clinic. The IDF says the area depicted here are Hamas military posts inside Gaza City. Israeli troops patrolled the area on foot, demonstrating how close a weapon storage facility is to a classroom. Hamas appears to be on its heels as the IDF also reported raiding the terrorist group's central intelligence headquarters. Hamas has lost control and is continuing to lose control in the north. The war now appears to be taking a significant turn. For the first time since the war began over a month ago, Israel has now agreed to have temporary humanitarian pauses in fighting for four hours a day. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari explained. We are at war with Hamas. There's no ceasefire. The public under Hamas is fleeing south because they understand that Hamas is using them as human shields. What does exist? There are humanitarian pauses. These pauses, humanitarian, for specific times, afford the population the chance to organize and move south for its security. Department of State Deputy Spokesperson Vedant Patel addressed one of the initial concerns. As we talk about this uh, movement of civilians, it's also uh, critical that humanitarian supplies and assistance are expanded in the areas where people are moving. Uh, over uh, the course of yesterday, we saw 106 trucks 
um, uh, of humanitarian aid flow into Gaza through the Rafa crossing. Uh, we'll continue to work towards this and make sure that there is apt flow uh, each day. And while officials focused on providing food and shelter for the displaced families, others entertain the children with cats. These animals came with a Gazan family that fled south. Simpson did not want to eat or drink or leave his cage, but a little later he started getting better and he started coming out of his cage and eating and became accustomed to it, just like we have. The IDF spokesperson said the temporary humanitarian pause on Thursday alone allowed over 50,000 Gazans to evacuate south. Jason Perry, NTD News. Senator Joe Manchin will not be seeking re-election. The West Virginia Democrat made the announcement this afternoon. Take a look. I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. Many have been speculating whether Manchin will run for president as a third-party candidate. Some say he plans to do so with a no-labels political movement. Today's announcement is yet another hint that Manchin might be aiming at the White House, writing he'll fight to unite the middle and repeatedly mentioning things such as the economy, the southern border, and overall safety in communities, all which he says are neither Democrat nor Republican issues. Voters in the largely red state of West Virginia may elect a Republican to Manchin's open seat, possibly helping the GOP take control over the Senate. How is the House faring under new leadership? Two weeks after uniting behind Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican lawmakers are having trouble agreeing on funding for specific budget items, setting up Congress for another last-minute face-off to avoid a shutdown next week. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. For the second time this week, Republicans were forced to skip a vote on a general government funding bill. Today's vote was delayed because of interparty divisions over funding for the FBI and a specific provision meant to prevent discrimination against abortion supporters here in Washington. Here's what members had to say about it leaving the floor. The moderates are standing our ground. Um, a lot of us in swing districts and a lot of us that want to be very respectful of where the American people are and aren't on these social issues are standing our ground and setting some limits as to what can get jammed into these bills. Obviously we, then we pulled them because we didn't have the votes. I think it's looking like we're still confused. But one thing is clear from this week's lack of progress. That is that Congress will have to take up a short-term government funding bill to avoid a shutdown next week. Some Republican lawmakers have pushed for doing this in a so-called laddered approach, which would be handling it in piecemeal. The benefit of doing the laddered CR is you're biting off a smaller chunk that you can chew instead of all 12 bills and some deadline that's not reasonable. But Democrats are a hard no on this, and the Senate is already pushing for a clean, continuing resolution, which is the status quo. In other news, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene today moved to force a vote to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas after two people in her district were killed. They shouldn't be losing their lives because illegals are trafficking more illegals into our country. So enough is enough. We can't wait anymore on Washington, D.C. No more strongly worded letters. Her motion is a privileged one, meaning that lawmakers will have to vote on this when they return to the House next week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News.
Turning to former President Trump's fraud trial in New York, Donald Trump Jr. will be the first defense witness to be called for the start of the defense team's presentations on Monday. This after the New York Attorney General's office rested its case on Wednesday. Judge Arthur Angoron today denied the state's motion to block certain expert witnesses from testifying on behalf of Trump and his sons. The judge explained that he didn't want the case reversed on appeal and he doesn't want a retrial. But Angoron is limiting their testimony to topics related to his prior decision. He has already ruled that the Trumps and their company are liable for fraud. Angaran didn't rule on a defense motion to have the remaining six claims dismissed. Rather, the parties were ordered to be back in court on Monday for the usual proceedings. A Michigan court is deciding if the state can kick former President Trump off the ballot. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details on the growing challenge to Trump's candidacy and the arguments in court today. Thank you. A Michigan judge specially selected to preside over a case that he normally wouldn't handle to determine whether or not Michigan's Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson can keep former President Trump off the state's ballot. In separate hearings Thursday, Judge James Robert Redford heard arguments on cases filed against Benson. Trump tried to get the cases dismissed, but the judge rejected it. Trump now plans to file his own complaint. In arguments Thursday, activists in two separate suits say the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump from running in the 2024 election because of his involvement in the January 6th Capitol breach and that Benson has the authority to remove his name from the state's presidential primary ballot. She has the initial authority under Article 11, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution, as well as under Michigan Election Law 168.31 to make a determination as to whether or not any presidential candidate meets the qualifications. Michigan has, and has had for a long time, much broader voter standing because Michigan recognizes the interest of every voter in the relevant district, in the integrity of the election, and making sure there are only eligible candidates on the ballot. Here, the Secretary of State um, has the obligation um, and the ability, and has done uh, those, kind, those kinds of eligibility determinations in the past. The Secretary of State doesn't dispute that the process requires her to ensure potential candidates are eligible. But, I, the, but the question is, what is our authority here today with respect to a presidential primary candidate? There's just nothing in those, those statutes or, you know, even a generic sort of administrative process or anything that gives us the authority. And, Trump isn't a party to these cases, but his attorney was allowed to weigh in. He said the law should be read in its entirety. Allowing a state secretary or, or other agency to disqualify a candidate uh, from even running has an impact beyond the state. Under Michigan law, there's no such power, and under federal law, there's no such power. Lawsuits to disqualify Trump have emerged in multiple states, including Colorado and Minnesota. The suits cite a federal law from the 1800s that prohibits holding office for those who swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, but then engaged in insurrection against it. The Minnesota Supreme Court on Wednesday dismissed a suit that relied on this provision. The two-sentence clause in the 14th Amendment has been used only a handful of times since the years after the Civil War. Judge Redford is permitting Trump to file his own complaint against the Secretary of State. 
Redford plans to issue three separate orders as quickly as possible. President Biden reacting to polls showing him trailing Trump in swing states. What's his response as he touts the UAW labor deal? NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. Traveling to Illinois on Thursday, President Biden touting the reopening of his Stellantis plant there and also a historic agreement reached between United Auto Workers and the big three automakers. You saved the auto industry. And they should step up for you. The deal will you reached set a new standard. The UAW deal, if ratified, would give auto workers a 25% pay hike, better retirement benefits, and more. Back in September, in a rare move by a U.S. president, Biden joined a UAW picket line as some of the members were striking. The move is largely seen as an attempt to gain more union support. But the White House stressing in this week that while President Biden shows support for striking members, it does not mean that the Biden administration was directly involved with labor negotiations. This is a victory for the men and women of the UAW. Obviously, we're able to give support to the negotiations, but they did the negotiations. But despite the administration's efforts in touting its economic record, recent polls continue to show a lack of confidence in President Biden's handling of the economy. A recent poll by the New York Times shows that only 19 percent of registered voters think that the economy is good or excellent. The poll also shows a leading edge by former President Trump over President Biden in a potential 2024 rematch. But the White House insisting that the polls don't represent the reality or the future in 2024, adding that President Biden is delivering for the American public. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. The actor's strike is coming to an end. After 118 days, actors and studios have finally reached an agreement. NTD's Fake Quarter talks with Hollywood insiders about how they feel. Striking actors and studios have made a deal. After 118 days, the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union has reached a tentative agreement with film producers. Actors are overjoyed. I feel great. I think everybody does. I mean, this has been four months, almost four months. It's been so long, and everybody has just wanting, been wanting to get back to work. Laura Orico is a SAG-AFTRA actress who participated in the strike. She says that 75% of being an actor is working just to get work. So the 118-day strike was especially hard on actors like herself. But now... I have a few jobs lined up. Um, I have a voiceover thing that's coming up in two months. And then I have a film. Production was held on it. I have a small part in that. Actors aren't the only ones overjoyed. Yeah, I'm thrilled because I have songs coming out of the movie for the first time in my life. So, you know, I'm sitting there waiting to get paid and also waiting to have my moment. Jesse Nash has worked in entertainment for 30 years. His PR firm lost business during the strike, and he saw many actors suffer. Most people in the entertainment acting industry, you know, 98% of them are not in that elite 1% that are getting paid millions. So... 118 days is an eternity. Nash believes actors ultimately got the protections they needed. SAG-AFTRA says the deal is valued at over $1 billion and that it includes significant compensation increases, protections from artificial intelligence, and a streaming participation bonus. The film producers say they've given the actors the biggest gains in the history of the union. 
They say they look forward to resuming the work of telling great stories. They've also been saying that it was really, really important to get this deal done because they have a lot of production that they want to engage in for, you know, the television season and for summer movies. SAG-AFTRA's chief negotiator, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, says he's excited the strike is over. He believes they have an agreement that actors can be proud of, one that was worth striking for. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, heated moments from last night's third GOP primary debate. Plus, we'll have analysis from podcast host Mike Leon on which candidates stood out and who didn't perform well. More candidates entering the presidential race. Activist Jill Stein today making the announcement. Find out which party she's running with and what her campaign promises are. And trial begins for the Paul Pelosi attack case. The man accused of striking the former House Speaker's husband made opening statements in court. Details soon here on NTD News. Welcome back. Five Republican presidential hopefuls duked it out at the third GOP 2024 debate in Miami last night. Candidates made their case to GOP voters on why they should be nominated instead of former President Trump. The debate in Florida took aim at foreign policy and other pressing topics hot on people's minds. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more takeaways on what the five candidates had to say. 2024 presidential candidate and Florida governor Ron DeSantis called out former President Trump in his appeal for the GOP nomination. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. He should explain why he didn't have Mexico pay for the border wall. He should explain why he racked up so much debt. He should explain why he didn't drain the swamp. And he said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, I'm sick of Republicans losing. Frustration shared by 2024 hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy, taking aim at the RNC chair for a losing track record since 2018, and NBC, the host of the debate. You think the Democrats, and we've got Kristen Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? Candidates were asked how, as president, they would respond to the Israel-Hamas war. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers Hamas. 2024 contender Chris Christie says as president, he would prioritize intelligence to avoid further terrorist attacks. Israel and their intelligence community failed. They failed here and they failed the people of the state of Israel. And so we need to work closely and better together. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says the issue needs to be addressed at its root. The former ambassador to the UN says terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah are only a threat because of Iran and its allies. And who is funding Iran right now? China is buying oil from Iran. Russia is getting drones and missiles from Iran. And there is an unholy alliance. We need to be clear-eyed. The last thing we need to do is to tell Israel what to do. The only thing we should be doing is supporting them and eliminating Hamas. An assessment supported by Senator Tim Scott. If you want to stop the 40-plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. If you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake. DeSantis and Haley at one point sparred over how to best deal with the Chinese regime and other foreign threats to the U.S. 
we will go and end all for formal trade relations with China until they stop murdering Americans from fentanyl, something Ron has yet to say that he's going to do. And then we modernize our military. When we strengthen our military, when we modernize it with the focus of cyber, artificial intelligence, and space, when we make sure that we have the backs of our friends, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Ukraine, and we should be arming Taiwan. In Florida? I banned China from buying land in this state, and we kicked out on our universities, and we kicked the Confucius Institutes out of our universities. We've recognized the threat, and we've acted swiftly and decisively. Haley and Ramaswamy continued their grudge match over TikTok and China. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my before daughter out of your else. voice. Adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. The easy scum. answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. GOP voters in Iowa weighed in after the debate. Calm, controlled, and informative. Uh, character counts over name calling and four out of five of people on the stage I could see being in the White House. Foreign policy takes center stage. GOP stands in solidarity and support of Israel. A much more civil debate tonight. Trump won another one. The fourth GOP primary debate is set for December 6 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Joining us now to react to the third GOP primary debate last night, we have Mike Leon, host of the news commentary podcast, Can We Please Talk? Which candidate stood out and who didn't perform well? Mike Leon, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, Tiffany, thank you so much for having me. We heard from five presidential hopefuls last night from the GOP party. Which candidate stood out to you the most? Well, you know, I mean, I've talked about the debate so much uh, on, on different outlets, and the first two debates really didn't go the way of this one, mainly because there's less candidates on the stage this time. Obviously, uh, North Dakota uh, Governor Doug Burgum wasn't on the stage, Asa Hutchinson wasn't on the stage, Ryan Binkley wasn't on the stage, who we've had on our program. So I think it made for a smaller, intimate environment where candidates can actually get their questions out uh, and not be interrupted. Even though we saw a little bit of that, I thought the first debate, and especially the second debate at the Reagan Library, a lot of interruptions. But in terms of the candidates that really stood out to me, I thought Nikki Haley gave some great answers again, and you're seeing why she's continuing to shoot up in the polling. The way she answered abortion and women's reproductive rights, her team has really harped on her about messaging to this. We just saw it play out in 2023 here uh, earlier this week, where the abortion issue was on the ballot in Ohio, and Ohioans voted to put abortion rights into the state constitution. So she answered that question really uh, effectively. I thought Ron DeSantis actually, now again, he's the governor of this state, so he's a little bit popular in the state, but I thought he answered some of the questions a lot better, specifically when it came to former President Trump, why he should be there, not in Hialeah, Florida, where he was doing a rally. And then I thought Governor Chris Christie answered a couple different questions with respect to the Israel-Hamas war and some of the things he did after 9-11 as governor of New Jersey really well. So those are the three that kind of stood out to me. And given this smaller field, we did hear more from each candidate who didn't perform well. 
Well, I, I've made this analogy bo- a bunch before about uh, Yogi Berra, the great Yankees baseball player, saying it's getting late early. And I think for Tim Scott, it's getting late early. I, I thought the senator was struggling at times when, when uh, the moderators asked him about Ukraine funding and how specifically he would go about approving that if he was president of the United States. And then we get to Vivek Ramaswamy, who is who has really stormed on the scene, and I compare him a lot to a TED Talk guy. And as somebody just a couple years older than him, um, I don't know if I would trust myself to be president of the United States. And given that I've worked in product and technology, similar to some of the fields that he has worked in and companies that he has launched, I think he really showed his age and his lack of knowledge on foreign policy things, especially when it comes to Taiwan, when it comes to what is happening in Ukraine. And then at the beginning of the of the uh, the debate itself, actually attacking RNC chair Ronna McDaniel and really going after her and saying that this debate should not be held by this forum, by NBC News, and kind of calling out the media for some of the things that they've done under the Trump administration. So I thought Senator Tim Scott didn't give the best answers of the night, not too much fanfare of people in the crowd. And I thought Vivek Ramaswamy really showed his age and lack of experience when it comes to foreign policy. As you mentioned, Trump was just down the road about 11 miles away conveniently. Now, all five candidates on stage made their case for why they're better than Trump. Who was most convincing or were they just fighting for plan B? Yeah, I mean, I, you you took the words out of my mouth, Tiff. I mean, I think they're fighting for plan B, unfortunately. We've seen all of the national polling, uh, especially the 10 biggest polls that have Trump and Biden kind of neck and neck right now. Trump leading him in a bunch of key critical states. I, I was on uh, earlier this week uh, kind of explaining the, that New York Times-Siena College poll. But I think right now, and, and you're noticing it, too, on the Democratic side of the aisle, former Representative Tim Ryan mentioning that President Biden should step aside. You're seeing more people starting to call for President Biden to step aside. And I think Republicans, at least, at least establishment Republicans and folks that I've talked to, would really like one of these candidates to kind of ascend to the top. And it's tough because Ron DeSantis tried his best yesterday by cutting to some of the core issues that are playing out right now that the Republicans are championing on, while all also trying to not alienate the base that's following former President Trump. But like you mentioned, he's 11 miles down the road and has, if not as big a crowd as what was in attendance at the Adrian R Center here down in Miami. So it's very tough because it's so early right now. You know, we're still about 10 weeks away from Iowa. So who knows what will finish in the top three there in terms of the ballot for Iowa. But I really think, unfortunately, these candidates right now are playing for second place. But it doesn't mean that they shouldn't get their message out and continue to try to, you know, hammer home that President Trump should be here defending some of the things that he did or didn't do in his administration, while also harping on the ways you have done things in your respective states, whether it be Florida, South Carolina, New Jersey, uh, for DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and, and Chris Christie, respectively. So I think they're fighting for second place, but I still think that these debates are valuable to kind of find out a little bit more about these candidates and why they should replace the former president as head of the GOP ticket. Mm. Mike Leon, thank you so much for your time. Tiffany, thank you so much. Another confirmed third-party candidate entering the 2024 race today. Jill Stein is running for president with the Green Party. She made the announcement a few hours ago. Over 60% of us now say the bipartisan establishments failed us, and we need a party that serves the people. I'm Jill Stein, and I'm running for president to offer that choice for the people outside of the failed two-party system. We'll put solutions to the crises we face, crushing inequality, 
endless war and climate collapse. Stein ran with the Green Party in 2016 against candidates Hillary Clinton and former President Trump. She's 73 years old, a former physician and an environmental advocate. This year, she has promoted action on climate issues, supporting the so-called Green New Deal. Her social media accounts show her new campaign slogan, People, Planet, Peace. The Green Party was founded in 2001. It focuses on environmental and social justice issues. The Paul Pelosi attack trial has begun. With jury selection complete, opening statements this morning officially began the hearing. NTD's Jason Blair brings us more. Just over a year ago, police were called to the Pelosi residence in San Francisco regarding a break-in. Hi, how you doing? David DePop is accused of breaking into the house and attacking Paul Pelosi, Representative Nancy Pelosi's husband, with a hammer. Drop the hammer. The trial started Thursday morning in a San Francisco federal court. DePop faces federal charges of assault on an immediate family member of a federal official and attempted kidnapping of a federal officer or employee. He faces a max of 30 years for the first charge and 20 years for the second. DePop also has several state-level charges that will be tried in another court. He has pleaded not guilty to all charges. Surveillance and police body cam footage were released in January that allegedly showed DePop attacking Pelosi and breaking into the house through a window. Two days after the footage was released, DePop allegedly made a somewhat bizarre phone call to a KTVU San Francisco reporter. During the call, he seemingly alluded to a motive for his alleged actions. It is now being used as evidence in court. During opening statements, DePop's legal team hinted at possibly not trying to refute too much evidence, but focusing more on the why of his actions, therefore proving his innocence of the charges. Reporting in San Francisco, Jason Blair, Entity News. Authorities are investigating as election offices received suspicious envelopes this week. It happened in two separate states, Washington State and Georgia. Washington Secretary of State Steve Hobbs said election workers in several counties discovered the envelopes on Wednesday and that they contained unknown powdery substances. One sample tested positive for fentanyl, another tested positive for baking soda. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said Fulton County election workers intercepted a suspicious letter before it reached the office. He called the incident an act of domestic terrorism. Up next, conflicts in the Middle East were a big part of last night's GOP primary debate. A former U.S. advisor on Iran joins us to discuss candidates' policies on Iran. A Jewish billionaire is resigning from the board of Columbia Business School. He criticized the way Jews are being treated on campus after the Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel. And oil prices stood at their lowest point in more than three months on Wednesday, despite the Israel-Hamas war. Conflicts in the Mideast have traditionally sent prices soaring, but why not this time? NTD Business host Don Ma explains after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. 
Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia will not be seeking re-election next year. The senator said he'll fight to unite the middle, with people speculating that he may be seeking higher office. Republicans in Congress are having trouble agreeing on funding for specific budget items. For the second time this week, the House was forced to skip a vote on a general government funding bill. A judge in Michigan heard arguments on whether the Secretary of State can keep Trump's name off state ballots for president. Activists say the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump from running in 2024 because he was involved in the January 6th Capitol breach. Israel has agreed to allow a four-hour humanitarian pause each day in northern Gaza to allow civilians to flee to the south. This came as Israeli troops raided Hamas's intelligence headquarters in the heart of Gaza City. As the Israel-Hamas war escalates, Iranian proxy groups are hitting a record number of U.S. military sites in the Middle East. And the issue came up in the third GOP debate last night. Joining us now to discuss U.S. policy on Iran and the candidates' different approaches, we have Gabriel Narona, former special advisor for Iran at the State Department. Gabriel Narona, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Now, we heard from five candidates in last night's third GOP debate, and foreign policy, Israel, Iran came up. Now, there were different takes on how to handle this. For instance, Senator Tim Scott talked about cutting off the head of the snake, as in Iran, and striking Iran first. Others, like Chris Christie, talked about isolating Iran. What did you make of those stances, and which seemed the strongest to you? Well, I do think Tim Scott is right that you can't just allow uh, over 100 attacks against uh, Americans in the region and just hit empty warehouses um, or their proxies in Iraq and Syria. That's why this has continued for the last two and a half years like this. And so if you want to actually solve the problem of, of these attacks against Americans, you either have to hit back very, very hard or you have to hit back where, where it counts uh, back in Iran. Um, you don't have to do that, but I think I think Tim Scott made a really important point there. I, I think he was right. Um, you had others um, calling just for isolating uh, Iran. That's important, but that's not enough. As you mentioned, there have been attacks on U.S. troops by Iran-backed groups. Now, the U.S. did strike in Syria against that, but it doesn't seem to have deterred Iran. What is the message the U.S. needs to be sending to actually stop that? Well, there's been over 40 attacks now by uh, Iranian militias uh, in the last month. We've now responded a total of two times. That's not even reciprocity. We're hitting empty warehouses uh, in Syria. Again, if you want to change the calculus, you have to show that we are able to what's called have escalation dominance. We need to be able to hit back much harder than they could even hit us and understand that we can go even further. That's what stops attacks. That's why we took out Qasem Soleimani uh, in 2020, and that stopped the cycle of escalation for a bit. Um, and so that's, I think, the most important thing here, um, to not just lay down and say, please stop. You have to show them of actions. How much of this is tying into the push for trying to renew the Iran nuclear deal? A lot of it. Um, part of the whole... Uh, principle that the Biden administration had when they came into office was that they were going to um, allow Iran to export more oil. They weren't going to enforce our sanctions. And they hoped that that would build goodwill with Iran to be able to get back into the deal. The opposite happened. Um, Iran got billions and billions of dollars, which it funneled to its terror networks. 
and they sort of said these guys are these guys aren't even uh, credible to be feared. We can take shots at them, and they will still negotiate because they'll want us to stop attacks. Um, frankly, this administration's Iran policy is is the worst I could possibly imagine. Um, the Iran envoy has been under FBI investigation for spilling classified secrets. Um, this whole policy is is completely off the rails. And it's not just Iran. We're also hearing about China, Russia, their friendship, their partnership, them helping Iran. How much is Iran getting from the Chinese Communist Party? Is it funding? Is it more than that? Without, without China, the Iranian regime probably would have collapsed right now. Um, they have bought millions, hundreds of millions of barrels of oil, um, about somewhere around 60 to 80 billion dollars worth of oil, which represents the majority of the regime's government budget. Um, so without China uh, purchasing this oil, uh, Iran either would have had a financial collapse or a political collapse and, and regime change at this point. Russia provides a lot of political top cover. Um, they've done a lot of uh, military cooperation. Now, however, uh, Russia is relying on Iranian weapons to fuel and survive its war against Ukraine. Um, previously, Russia was providing military advisors, selling weapons to Iran, and I think once the war in Ukraine ends, we're going to see a return to that kind of relationship. Right now, there is talks of escalating. There's multiple theaters in Europe. You have Ukraine, the Middle East, Israel, Hamas. There's talks about Asia, South China Sea, South Korea, North Korea, Taiwan, Beijing. In terms of foreign policy, what would you like to see in the next candidate, whoever that is? Well, they need to understand the importance of American strength, of funding the U.S. military, and not being afraid to show leadership and punch back on occasion. No one wants to start a war in, in the Asia-Pacific. No one wants a war with, with China. It would, it would be de deadly. No one wants a war with nuclear-armed North Korea. But the single most likely way to get to a war is with provocative weakness with the other side believing that they can take Taiwan, for example, and that the United States won't respond, or believing that the United States military is too weak um, and they wouldn't be able to beat the Chinese military. That is the single greatest risk um, of what takes us into war. Um, unfortunately, with the military spending we have now, we simply are not funding the Navy um, to be able to provide that deterrent posture. Um, I think North Korea is a little bit more stable uh, today than it was five years ago. Um, they don't seem eager to start anything right now. Um, I think China is in, in the wrong place there. Gabriel Norona, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. A Jewish billionaire is resigning from the board of Columbia Business School. He says the college is showing moral cowardice and that Jews are not welcome on Columbia campuses. Billionaire investor Henry Svieca sent a letter to Columbia writing, Columbia University and by extension Columbia Business School have been significantly compromised by a moral cowardice that appears beyond repair. Adding that the actions of Columbia students and professors send a clear and distressing message that Jews are not just unwelcome but also unsafe on campus. He criticized that students are allowed to call for the destruction of Israel while protesting on campus, saying the school would never permit attacks against any other minority on campus. Oil prices on Wednesday stood at their lowest point in more than three months. That's over concerns of waning demand in the U.S. and in China. We spoke with NTD Business host Don Ma for details. 
Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here as always, Tiffany. To begin, why have oil prices come down? Is the conflict in the Middle East not a concern anymore? Well, Tiffany, I've said this before uh, at the beginning of this conflict that uh, if it was con contained between Israel and Hamas and that it didn't spread to other countries that investors uh, wouldn't be too worried about it. And I think that's what we're seeing now. The market is clearly less concerned about the potential for the Middle Eastern supply disruptions. Um, in fact, I think we can say for some investors, at least, that there's actually a sense of confidence uh, that the war in Israel and the Gaza Strip is not going to impact supply. And what are investors shifting their attention to now? Well, there's a number of moving parts here uh, that's involved, and one of them uh, I think that's having an impact is supply. Uh, U.S. crude oil inventory rose by about 12 million barrels last week, uh, some sources uh, said, citing American Petroleum Institute data. Uh, U.S. oil production is steadily ratcheting up. Um, in the first week of November, for example, U.S. crude oil production hit 13.2 million barrels per day, uh, which, by the way, is a new record. Uh, so there's a factor uh, over there. Uh, another factor is that, uh, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, petroleum consumption uh, will actually fall by 300,000 barrels per day. So essentially what you have here is a situation of increased supply and reduced demand. So, uh, I mean, of course, that's weighing on prices, but there's, uh, there's more here. Uh, the world's biggest crude oil importer, uh, China, uh, is seeing the country's total exports of goods and service contract faster than expected. And this is also feeding worries about oil demand. And, and just one more thing I'll mention here is there's concern about the global economy as well hitting a potential roadblock going forward. Hmm. And how is OPEC's production cuts factoring into all of this? So Saudi Arabia uh, said it would extend its voluntary production cuts of 1 million barrels uh, daily of crude until the end of the year. And some are saying that perhaps uh, this is a tacit admission uh, that crude oil demand isn't as strong as OPEC has been expecting. But the bottom line here is, Tiffany, that the U.S. production is a big factor that we can't overlook in terms of global markets. Um, and, and the same goes for Chinese demand, and both are currently developing in a way that would uh, favor lower prices. A lot of moving parts here, Don Ma. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Coming up, tension in the Big Ten. What would Michigan's response be? Should the conference sanction them instead of waiting for the NCAA? We'll have details after the break. Welcome back. Now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, there's a drama unfolding in the Big Ten Conference right now between Michigan and really the rest of the conference. How do you see this ending up? Uh, in court. You know, college football is big business. It's extremely competitive. And Michigan has been very successful. You know, they're on straight for the third straight playoff appearance. They've won two straight uh, Big Ten titles. Clearly, though, the rest of the conference is not happy with them. Reportedly, they've met with the conference commissioner, pushing for a two-full-week suspension that's instead of two games. Big difference there. 
Uh, now, Michigan has reportedly said they would take legal action, so they've got their heels dug in. Now, you've said that other coaches have anonymously stated that illegal sign stealing is somewhat pervasive in college football. If that's true, why would there be such a rush to punish Michigan this season? Well, for one, they've been very good this season. And if you wait until next year to punish them, it's not really the same team getting punished. I mean, for all we know, Harbaugh could move on after the season, and, you know, and then what? But also the evidence reportedly seems pretty blatant. I mean, purchasing tickets to opponents' games, uh, being caught video recording them from the sidelines. Now, I think Michigan, though, has a good point that this could set a dangerous precedent for the future. If this kind of thing is as pervasive as some say it is, it would really open up a can of worms going forward. Hmm. And looking at the games on the field this weekend, certainly all eyes will be on the Michigan-Penn State game, whether Harbaugh is on the sidelines or not. But there's also a number of key games in the Pac-12. How do you see those shaping up? You know, the, the Pac-12 has only landed two playoff teams in the, in the nine-year history of the college football playoffs. But this year, the, the conference is as loaded as ever. They've got five teams ranked in the top 25, plus USC and UCLA are right behind them. Now, Washington and Oregon are their two main shots at making the playoffs. Both have tough games. Washington has Utah. Oregon has USC. USC is dangerous. They just fired their defensive coordinator. They still have Caleb Williams at quarterback. I think they give Oregon all they can handle this Saturday. And shifting gears to the pro game, the New York Jets, who have scored the third fewest points in the NFL, haven't made any personnel changes to their offense thus far. How long do you think that continues? Well, I mean, I guess for as long as their defense can keep them afloat. Normally in these situations, you get rid of either the head coach, the offensive coordinator, or the quarterback. I don't think they're getting rid of the head coach, Robert Saleh. He's done 2 with the defense. Their offensive coordinator, Aaron Rodgers, loves the guy. That leaves Zach Wilson. Now, Wilson was benched last year, but they don't have the same backups uh, that they had last year. I think the Jets, I think, honestly, they're just hoping that Rodgers continues his miraculous recovery uh, because it would really be a shame to waste this great defense. Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.